Thanks, Krista. I want to add my uh, welcome to that you've already had here this morning from Beck and uh, from John. It's it's just good to be here, isn't it? Like we say it a bit. We say there's 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 no one here who isn't missed in their absence. Uh, like when you're not here, we miss you amongst us, and there's no one who is here who isn't valued in their presence. Like when we get together, what we seems to have been a little theme this morning we're saying to each other is that we value this. We value being here. We value each other. We love each other. So we come together to nurture and, and to build each other up. And we, we live in this relationship with each other. And it's just encouraging to come here and to be here. I often say to Locke, isn't it cool that we get to go to church and we get to see other people that love Jesus. Like you go to your school, it's a Christian school, but I think there's six people there who are Christians. Um, you go to work or wherever it is and you are not encouraged in your Christian faith. Not well, but here we are encouraging each other. So it's good, good to be here, uh, good to have you amongst us. I don't need that. Hey, today we're kicking off, as we've said, a series in, in Galatians, a uh, seven-week series. Um, so here's the thing. What I'm going to try and do is each week have a standalone message that, that just kind of stands in its own right. But the thing about the book of Galatians is it, it, it gathers its strength as, as it goes along, like it, it compiles uh, on itself. And so um, what I think is you will get the most out of this series if you come every week. And that'll be good for you and, and that'll be good for me because what I'll feel like is if you're coming each week and I, I've got some confidence in that and feel a bit of trust between us, I won't have to go over uh, things every week. And here's the benefit for you. And you can sit there going, is this another bribe? Is this like the car thing? Um, it'll shorten our time together, won't it? So, uh, point being, hey... You'll get the most out of this book if you commit to hearing this, the message, if you commit to going to your small group each week. Uh, you know, in the first nine verses here, Paul pretty much says everything he's going to say in this book. It's dense and it's packed in, but he expands on it and he fills it out and he gives it application as we go. So um, I just encourage you to do that. Hey, let's, let's pray and we'll, we'll, we'll get into uh, Galatians. Lord, we thank you that as we look into your word this morning, uh, we, we can trust it. We, we, we know it's from you. And would your spirit this morning illuminate the truth that we, we find in your word uh, to our hearts that we might know, that we might perceive your love and your grace for rebels and that it would convict us and that it would transform us and that our hearts uh, in this grace would be warmed in affection for you. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, I wonder, have you ever been so frustrated with someone's foolish behaviour that uh, you just want to pull your own eyes out and step on them so you don't have to watch it any longer? Like, if you've got kids, perhaps you've been in that space, but that's just how it makes you feel. As my mum used to say to, to me uh, before it became a jailable offence, you just make me want to wring your little neck, you know? Which carried, I tell you, that carried a bit more weight when you grew up in an environment where you saw animals get their necks ringed, like rabbits and things. So you kind of knew what she was feeling like. 
You simply can't believe what you're seeing or hearing. It's not that it's just ignorant foolishness that's, that's making you like this, like the person didn't know any better, but it's informed foolishness. It's, it's foolishness by choice. They've, they've had the resources, they've had the time poured into them, yet they go back to these habits. They go back to these behaviours that they freely acknowledged or have freely said, yeah, that's kind of harmful for me or that's a selfish way to be or, or, or that's dysfunctional. They know there's no life in that kind of stuff. They know it leads to destruction. And what makes your frustration so intense is that it's a dismissal of, of, of wisdom, if you like. And it's also a dismissal of, of truth that you're sowing in. It's the cheapening of that, the invalidation of it, the invalidation and the cheapening of your love toward them, your, your care, your concern. These things don't just come out of because you're trying to be hard to get along with. You might not admit it, but it causes you to burn with frustration or positive correctiveness is a good word for it that just kind of wants to wring the little necks of the foolish friends or foolish work colleagues or, or you know, people like that. You ever been in that space? Ever felt like just me? Okay. <laughs> Pray for your lies. That is the feeling. Hey, this is a safe space. Our gospel is grace. You can admit your faults, so it's cool. That is the feeling that is coursing through the veins of the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter to the Galatians, to first-generation Christians who have received or who have accepted the gospel of salvations on the grounds of grace, grace being the unmerited saving action of God towards a sinner. That's what grace is in the context of, of the gospel. Keller sums it up like this, and we, we say this often, that you are far more wicked than you've ever dared believe, but you are far more loved and accepted in Christ than you would ever dare hope. That's, that's grace. We read about these churches in Galatia, these frustrating churches to Paul now, uh, in the book of Acts, uh, through, from about chapter 13 through to chapter 20. Paul goes on, three different missionary journeys backwards and forwards through the Galatian world uh, planting or preaching this gospel of grace and planting and nurturing churches. And somewhere in that timeline, along the way, Paul has heard that these Galatians uh, in all these different churches are drifting back or actually being coerced back uh, to a program of salvation, to, to salvation through through practice, to salvation, through, through ritual, through, through works and activity, not grace. And Paul's white-hot frustration and cause for concern is not merely because he feels like he's been rejected, but because the way of salvation that God has made known to him is being perverted, distorted by false... Uh, influences and false teachings by a, a small uh, group of Jewish people. Not all of the Jews, but this is just a, a small group of Jews who kind of dogged Paul wherever he went and whatever he did with coming in and going, hey, you know, Paul kind of had it right, but he's this, we want to add something to it. We refer to these guys as the Judaizers because of their, their, their rigid focus on... Um, 
Jewish practice. Uh, we would call them legalists in our day and age. And here's the thing. They essentially claim that Paul is actually watering down the way of salvation. He's making it too easy. That Paul is trying to please people and not God through, through, through this gospel of grace. They reject the claim that saving faith attached to trusting in the work of Jesus alone uh, leads to faith that, 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 that pleases God. What they say is you've got to add some practice to it. You've got to add some rituals to it that exist in the law, circumcision, diets, these kind of things. For Paul, this is not just a case of protecting foolish people from foolish behaviour. It's not that they're not looking both ways as they cross the road. It's a case of protecting them from false doctrine, correcting and restating the correct doctrine, the correct content of the gospel, its power, its origin, the truth of the gospel that affects salvation in people's lives. Any distortion or perversion of this, no matter how small, Paul says, leads to a gospel that is no gospel at all and therefore doesn't lead to freedom from sin but an even greater slavery to it. So Paul's fury, this, 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 this white-hot frustration that he feels is a pastoral fury that he has for the churches. He, he loves these people and his love is corrective. They are not deserting Paul but rather they are deserting or, or perhaps better put, they're not trusting uh, God and the way that he has called them into salvation, the, the, the gospel that he called them through. So they are returning to a world of unobtainable self-righteousness. Like they, they know they can't actually constantly do the things they're being asked to do. And so that enslaves them. So that enslaves them to self-loathing, if you like, and never being good enough and beating ourselves up all the time. Or they are returning to um, a sort of an unaccountability, if you like, uh, of complacency where there's actually no visible sign uh, or discernible change in the person. The gospel hasn't made any discernible change in a person. There's no, there's no grief over sin. There's no pursuit of holiness. The gospel is merely information. It's just a worldview that's kind of like an insurance policy, if you like. And to be in both, either of these camps is to deny the power and the transformation of the gospel. And that's what's been in Paul out of shape. These two concerns that drive Paul's anxiety, his pastoral fury, work themselves out in our lives the same as it did then. They, they kind of do it like this. We don't fully trust the gospel of salvation by grace, so we, we kind of like, oh, I'll kind of help God out a little bit with our salvation. I'll give him a hand. It's subtle how we do it. We serve to please God not because God's pleased in us already. We, we, we are moral to please God. We are dutiful to please God. We give 
tithes to show how deserving we are of our salvation in order to maintain our salvation. So the activity is to gain God's pleasure when we, grace says we already have it. We say, if I keep a good record, I'll be saved. I'll keep being saved. In doing so, we say that what you have done, God, in Christ is not enough. And we'll, we'll kind of help you out a bit. We'll make sure we get it over the line. Sounds very humble, doesn't it? But in fact, it's appallingly arrogant. Salvation by our observation of rules, our observation of codes, our compliance, moral behaviour modification, look at my goodness, is not the gospel of grace. The other way we distort the gospel is we deny a need for change. This is right at the other end. Uh, We live in a self-defined freedom, being forgiven, free to do whatever we like because we have this insurance policy, because we said a prayer and invited Jesus into our lives at some point. You won't ever find that in the Bible, by the way, so if you're pinning your hope on that, you're in a bit of trouble. That we agreed to. And as long as we maintain our rating, you know, by ticking a few boxes, we're free to do whatever we want. God will forgive us. Sexual immorality, dishonest work practices, abusive relational practices, yeah, it's no biggie. Jesus got it covered. We go to church, we go to small group, but there's no effective change in our lives. We look the same as the people who don't come to church, who don't go to small groups. There's no change in our lives. But that's okay. Because God isn't into rules, freedom, right? He loves me just the way I am. Have you heard that before? So back off. If Jesus is okay with my brokenness, my weakness, just let me keep acknowledging my brokenness and my weakness. No. The gospel is the power of salvation to create change, to transform. It's not okay with where you are. And it is the grace to live out the implications of that salvation. So, God loves you in Christ in spite of the way you are, who you are. You see the subtle difference there? Like, Jesus loves me just the way I am. Well, if that's the case, what's he doing on the cross? But he loves you in spite of the way you are. That's, that's a deeper love. Yeah? Anyone want to nod? In spite of your brokenness, and it's an unconditional commitment to your healing, to your transformation. That's a gospel, yeah? Galatians attacks these two perversions of the gospel of salvation by works and salvation devoid of the evidence of grace, devoid of works and anchors us in Christ who establishes our salvation by grace and then empowers us to live out its implications. The gospel is not just the power of God to save a sinner It is also the power of God to preserve a Christian, to to keep them journeying and and, and, and moving toward holiness, toward a relationship with God. 
As Paul opens up his letter, we find some indicators that this letter is a little different in in tone than in any of the other letters that that Paul actually writes. Uh, All of Paul's letters follow a similar pattern in them. If you read them, they all start and have a very similar process. They're from Paul, who is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then they're to an audience, the Corinthians, the Colossians, the Galatians. Uh, There's a salutation in there, grace and peace. Uh, you know, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we have this in common. Uh, you know, we're, we're friends. We're, we're, you know, we're come in peace, if you like, uh, I think Keller says. And then Paul always moves on to mention something that he's thankful for. You know, I'm thankful for the word I hear about you. I'm, whatever it is, for their relationship together. And then they get into the, and then he gets into the concerns of the letter. And that's a standard practice in Paul's a standard practice in ancient literature. On this occasion, there's two noticeable differences. Paul intros himself negatively as an apostle. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle from Christ Jesus. He says, I'm an apostle not from men nor through men. And also what we notice is there is literally no thanksgiving section in the opening of this letter. Like He's not happy. He just whips straight on to... I am astonished. Like, I can't believe what I'm hearing. So what we see is Paul starts this... Why does Paul make this subtle shift? Why does he start in this negative framework? Well, Paul sets out to legitimise that his gospel message uh, against the message that the Judaizers are preaching is, is, is divine in its origins. It hasn't come from men. He wasn't appointed by men. He'll go on to more length to establish his credibility and the divine origin of his gospel next week, which is why you have to keep coming along so you hear how this unfolds. But Paul is an apostle in the unique and distinct manner that that the twelve were, that the twelve apostles of Jesus were. That is... Uh, his understanding and his own transformation by the gospel came from a personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. It wasn't by way of a dream. It wasn't by uh, a way of a vision, not through a conversation with Peter or John or, or someone else. The risen Lord Jesus stood physically in the presence of Paul and spoke to him and taught him, and ministered to him. And as he did, Paul's heart is transformed from a gospel persecutor, a guy who who is trying to push this message about Jesus into the dirt, to a gospel proclaimer, a planter of churches that grow out of this gospel. We read about that uh, conversion in Acts 9. Paul received his message from seeing and hearing the risen Lord. So Paul is clear. This gospel that I am preaching, it's not my musings, it's not my thoughts about Jesus or the thoughts that others have told me about Jesus. I haven't been called or trained by men. I was called by God through Christ. Neither. So therefore, that being the case, if my gospel is of a divine origin, It's not the thoughts of people. It is the revelation of Jesus. Neither Paul or anyone else has any authority to change this gospel from its original content. 
our gospel, the gospel that affects change in our lives is an apostolic gospel. It comes from God through Jesus to men who personally saw and heard Jesus and then they preached it and then they planted churches into the world that 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 message would go out and we receive that in scripture. That's how we have it. John was the last of these apostles. Once he died, the apostolic a witness of the gospel ended and the Bible became a closed book. So, why is this important to us? Listen, if somebody stands up and says, oh, I had a dream, I had a vision, you know, I ate some bad fruitcake last night, but don't let that bother you. And in this dream I saw uh, Jesus and he said this or an angel and he said this or a Martian or whatever it is and they said this, and we need to gather around uh, this new teaching. We need to you know, concentrate on this new thing. I don't know if any of you were around when the Toronto Blessing went through the church. Like, how did that ever get some legs? Honestly. What Paul is telling us, that if whatever comes out of their mouth next is in the slightest bit different to the gospel that the physical risen Lord Jesus spoke to the apostles that we have in Scripture, it's no gospel at all. And, and, and in the second half of our reading, Paul says, even if, it's an, even if it's an angel, show them the door. That's why Paul says the message of the Judaizers is no gospel. It's the thoughts of men. That's why we say things like Charles Taz Russell and the Jehovah's Witnesses are a false church. They're preaching a false gospel. Joseph Smith, the Mormons, false gospel, false church. Crazy preachers who bang on about prosperity and signs and wonders as evidence of saving faith. You find that in the gospel. What are they going on about? It's not the gospel that squares up with the apostolic witness. Those who were taught and tutored the gospel by a bodily, present, risen Lord Jesus. Not a vision, not an apparition, not a bad night on the gas. There are no apostolic apostles, capital A, after John. We recognise that. There are, though, and here's the thing just by way of information, there are small A apostles, people who are identified with having extraordinary gifts of leadership, who, who do plant churches, who, who do go and, and, and preach the gospel and these kind of things. But their authority is not divine. They don't have a special new message. Their authority comes from scripture, has to. So that's why it's important to have your Bibles open to be looking at the words that Paul wrote, that John wrote, so that you know, not that I even think I'm a small a apostle, not even close to that kind of gifting, but you know my words, square away, that I've been diligent to try and, you know, present this truth as best I can. You want to be able to do that. That's, that's your responsibility. So Paul, as a divinely appointed apostle, he is eager 
Uh, uh, this is the, the pastoral outworking, if you like, of, of, this, of this frustration to remind the Galatians of the true content, the true nature of the gospel. And so keen is he to, to get into to what the gospel is that he's usually a uh, short salutation, which, like I said, just normally appears as grace and peace uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, which, you know, we said is a, that's just a, a shared symptom of, of knowing Jesus. It's the reality that knowing Jesus brings into our lives. Grace and peace. You never had it before, you got it now. It's normally that short. But here Paul's pen just can't stop as his mind thinks about that and, and pours out about what establishes that symptom of grace and peace. And Paul gives us a quick but a very comprehensive uh, outline of the gospel. The gospel is this, God in and through Jesus rescues or or delivers is the word the ESV uses, rescues, delivers sinners from the penalty of sin to come and the effects of sin to enslave us now in in this present evil age in accordance with his will for his glory. There it is. So, the gospel has content. There's content in what Paul is saying. There's doctrine, there's specific teaching. And it, kinda, it has an order, if you like. It begins with God who initiates grace towards the sinner through Jesus on our behalf. And it takes hold of and, and affects a transformation in us. And then in response to that, we then live out the implications of that gospel free of the condemnation of sin while still living in a world that is afflicted by sin. Here's what we understand from this as we read through this little gospel outline. We are helpless and lost. That is why we need delivering or rescuing. You only rescue lost people. If they're able to save themselves, you don't really bother. Here's where the gospel stands alone in world religions. All other religions or all other religious founders, they come to teach us. They come to impart a way, a method or behaviour modification that that says, hey, here's a way to find salvation. Here's a way to uh, discover or work salvation. But Jesus comes to rescue. Jesus is the salvation. No doubt he's a great teacher, but that is not part of the gospel. You don't find Jesus was a great teacher in the gospel. You find Jesus is a rescuer in the gospel. The world had already had plenty of good teachers. It doesn't need someone to teach it how to be moral. It needs someone to rescue it from its inability to be moral. It needs someone who can rescue it. So the gospel then is not follow Jesus' teachings and be saved. It is be saved by Jesus, through Jesus, so then then you can live out the implications of what this gospel has for us. A Christian is not merely someone who, who tries to follow Christ's teaching. Anyone. You don't need to be a Christian to try that. Anyone can try that, but, but generally just to try with white-knuckled determination leads to exhaustion and disappointment. A Christian is someone who realises there is no way they can do all that God requires, and nor, nor did they want to. But 
they trust that Jesus has done that on their behalf. And now that is um, applied to them. Keller makes this point that if you want to save someone from drowning, you don't throw that person a swimming manual. Hey, you know, while you're going down, just read this. Uh, learn three different styles of swimming. You should be able to get yourself out of trouble. You throw them a rope. Jesus is a rope. Metaphor. How is Jesus the rope? Paul says, he gave himself to rescue us, to deliver us. He, he substituted places with us, uh, us. He drowned so that we could be rescued. So to stick with the drowning person metaphor, Jesus swims out, grabs you and brings you back to a place of safety knowing that the moment he dives past the no swimming uh, sign on penalty of death that we ignored, that we just ran past and dove in, he is knowingly, willingly, lovingly trading places with us, dying for our rebellion. He is rescuing us by taking the penalty of living against God's design. It's not that he even that, that he got uh, you to shore and, and just tapped out from exhaustion either, from the mere effort of rescuing uh, the world and saving the world. Oh, that's why he died. That's not the picture we get from Scripture. Jesus dies strong. Jesus' death shows his weakness, his humanity. But hey, Jesus dies strong. With a loud voice, we read in Luke's Gospel, we find this, with a loud voice, Jesus says, now this loud is not so much to do with volume, but to do with conviction and confidence. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It ain't no whimper from the cross. It's a bold claim of trust in the will of God to be executing this Gospel on behalf of people, lost people. Here again is the radical nature of the gospel. Other religious systems require us to do something, give something, be something, and God will accept you. The gospel says, do nothing. Jesus does on our behalf. And we are accepted because of our trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf. So here's the beauty of that. You can never fall out of that kind of grace because it's not based on your ability to do it. It's not based on your ability to maintain it. You can't fall out of that grace because it's established in what Jesus has done. Not your merit, but Jesus' merit. We are not saved by our strong faith or our incredible trust in and love for God or, or a life that is committed to God. We are saved through our faith in Jesus. It's not the level of faith that we have but the object of that faith that saves us. You follow that? A substitutionary, sacrificing rescuer. So, we're helplessly lost in sin, incapable, unwilling of saving ourselves. First part of the gospel. 
Jesus initiates the rescue. He dives into waters. He takes our place, second part of the gospel. But what if, what if, what if he's just lost his mind? What if that's just misplaced heroism? third part of the gospel is what God does. He establishes us in grace and peace because of what Jesus did. It's not just a greeting that Paul starts with. It's a statement of a new reality that Jesus has delivered Christians into. Grace and peace. That's a reality of your heart and your soul. There's no condemnation now for sin because Jesus has already received that condemnation. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, he accepted the work that Jesus had done to deal with sin as being complete and as satisfying his wrath towards sin, absorbing, transferring that wrath and that judgment onto him so that we, trusting in that work, also receive God's acceptance, that raising back to new life. None of this was our idea or our request, but the eternal will of God. It was God's plan. It was God's design. This is all the doing of God who planned our rescue in eternity past. There is nothing in us that moved him to make that plan. It was in place. It was his plan. That is why Paul says, the gospel gives glory to God alone when it's realised. A biblical gospel, Paul's gospel, is a, is a clear uh, is clear. Salvation is all God's doing from first to last. It's his calling. It's his plan. It's his action. It's his work. And so he deserves all the glory for it, for all time. It's this great reversal and it's extraordinarily humbling. We have to realise we bring nothing but our sinful selves to the table. And even then we don't want to realise that. Carlos says... Paul reminds us right out of the gate in this letter that in the gospel we are brought both lower and raised higher than we can ever imagine. The gospel of grace, the news to share that that Jesus gave Paul and the other apostles is that God is calling. He is initiating he is moving towards, that he is interrupting, disturbing, illuminating people's hearts regardless or in spite of their goodness or their badness to their need of a rescue. It's so good because this excludes no one and it includes everyone because it's not based on what I, on what you bring to the table. It's not based on what I or you have done but on what Jesus gives and what Jesus has done. It sets us free from the anxiety of condemnation that will we ever be good enough? No, but that's okay. Jesus has been good enough and we rest in that promise. It establishes you in grace and peace to live out the symptoms of being in a relationship with Jesus. Paul's just astonished that anyone would want to change that, would want to accept a perversion or a distortion of this grace. 
That is to return to slavery of trying to be what you can't be and that's good enough. A gospel of works, of Jesus plus something you add. And no matter how subtle that is, how piously motivated that might be, that is no gospel. Paul says, actually, it's death. And he says that anyone who teaches it, who promotes it, deserves death. That is harsh, do you not think? This letter opens strongly, passionately. Paul is not talking about just merely a physical death here. He is talking about eternal separation from God. Let anyone who preaches a gospel that is not a gospel of grace be accursed, be separated from God forever. Hey, preacher, worship leader, make sure you never add or subtract to Jesus being the author and perfecter of our faith. Hard way to finish, isn't it? Our salvation is by grace alone. It's the will of God. Nothing made him do it. Nothing coerced him. It was his free will, his love for us. Our our salvation is through faith alone. That is trust in something known. What is that? Christ. Our salvation is in Christ alone. The object of our faith, the securer of our salvation, is nothing we do or deny, but everything that we find in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, your word that comes to us, that we know we can trust it, that we, we understand that this is not the thoughts of man, But this gospel that we have, that all these writings hang around, is a teaching uh, uh, and a good news that you personally passed on to apostles and they have enshrined it into scripture for us and then your spirit comes and works this truth into our lives and illuminates it in our hearts. And as we hear, maybe, I don't know, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, we pray that we would rest in this, that we would understand that our, our faith, our salvation is all grace, is all you toward us, freeing us to live uh, out the implications of that. We, we'll get into that as this letter unfolds. But Lord, we give you thanks for your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.